And I'm like, that's fine. You can like what you like, right? And so it's yeah, just, I don't understand it, but yeah, Pokemon cards or whatever, right? And so <laughs> Beanie Babies. Yeah, and... yeah, it's always like something. But I'm like, people <laughs> like what they like, and um, who am I to judge? And there we are. Hello, hello, everybody. Another episode of Open Action with John McLean, presented by Arms Corps Precision. I am, of course, John McLean, and my guest for this episode has a very, very interesting background and and in, into what he does now. And the only reason I know that is because I've known this guy for a very long time, because he's actually married to one of my cousins. Um, so we start off with, with what I know about him, which is that he started out as a break dancer, a b-boy. And then yep. from there, he uh, he got into building AKs with Jim Fuller over at Rifle Dynamics, became one of like their head AK comm block uh, specialists over there. Then he expanded, started his own company now called uh, Ironborn Armory, where he also makes knives. And his knives are having to do with his name, which is Billy Cho Knives. So my guest is Billy Cho. What's up, Billy? What's going on, John? It's been a little while. It's been a long while, yeah, especially <laughs> since... Uh, you know, we're, neither one of us is in Vegas anymore. You, you left. You and Esther left Vegas a long time ago, um, and and now I get why. After I moved to Missouri, <laughs> I was like, oh, because Vegas sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we left Vegas in 2015, so it feels like it wasn't that long ago, but it was like technically eight years ago now. So, um, yeah, it's it's uh, like I said, Vegas will always be home. I'm sure it's the same as you, but it was it's. Uh, it's not a good place to raise kids, you know what I mean? So it's, uh, yeah, the Vegas always, you know, there's always the glitz and glamour and everyone always goes there in our industry for a shot show and things like that. But it's, you know, they they bring all these cool things, you know, to the city, like great restaurants and chains and stuff like that, just to hide the fact that it's really a crap town. You know what I mean? So it's... <laughs> well, and you know, but I'll say this, like when we grew up in Vegas, it was a different city than it is now. So, like, uh, our parents raising us in Vegas was not considered cruel and unusual. Like, right. we had grass in our front yard. We had grass in our backyard. We had swimming pools. Yeah. We, we were, like, we used to jump on our bikes and ride three neighborhoods over to go hang out with friends. And our parents used to kick us out and lock the door behind them, right? So, yeah. you just I mean, can't do yeah, that we, anymore. Yeah, I mean, we were, like, the last generation that really didn't spend our time on the internet and stuff like that and so yeah it was a, a very different time and you know i have this love-hate relationship with vegas because you know it did provide opportunities for our family members who are immigrants and and you know getting jobs at casinos and things like that um but i mean as far as like education wise you know my friend was a valid victorian for um one of the high schools there and when he went to college Everyone's like, dude, you guys from Vegas are dumb. You, know, you can't write, you can't talk, you can't do anything to hang out, basically hang in basic college, you know? That's so. hella whack. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember the first time I, I was on tour with my band, and the first time I said hella on the East Coast, like six people stopped what they were doing and looked at me and went, did you just say hella? I'm like, yeah, why? And they're like, what the heck, what does that mean? I'm like, you've right. never heard that term? Yeah, so... Yeah, the funny thing is you're in Missouri now, which is one of the big culture shocks when I went to Missouri. 
Uh, I went to college in Missouri, and that was a big culture shock, leaving Vegas for the first time and living in Missouri for college, where I'm like, hey, where are the slot machines? I mean, what do you mean gas stations close? I mean, it's yes. like... Yeah, I mean, what do you mean you can't buy a beer after 10 o'clock or something like that? You know, it's like uh, it was a big, uh, big culture shock and, and a big, uh, you know, kind of also gave me the love for the outdoors, which I'm sure you're enjoying right now as well. You know, I it took me 34 years to realize that I like killing deer, um, <laughs> not not just the fact of killing. Understand that that's not just the act, but the whole aspect of learning, learning about the deer trying to figure them out, trying to figure out what goes on in their head, how they're, how, why they're going to do what they're going to do, and how to um, be in the right spot to allow that interaction to happen. And then, of course, to fill the freezer, because, like, I don't just kill the deer and then leave it there, or I actually process it and put it in my freezer and then and eat them throughout the year. So, um, but no, I absolutely, like, and that was a huge catalyst that I, I go turkey hunting, even though, well, I don't, I don't actually go turkey hunting. I just take my shotgun for hikes. Because <laughs> um, I haven't killed a turkey yet, but um, dove hunting is coming up too. That that starts on the first, um, so that'll be a, a new venture for for me. I tried it last year, and it was like, like I said, just me taking my my gun for a walk. Um, but yeah, I absolutely I love it. Hiding in a fake tent for like hours and days at a time, right? And uh... yeah, <laughs> but, you know, it so there was a maybe it was last year or two years ago we had like this drop in deer activity in the property that I was hunting. And when I was out there, um, I got a text message from Kelly and she was like, you know, why are you out there? We, we know there's nothing out there cause there's nothing been showing up on our cameras. But it, it was, for me, it was like, well, I'm out here because I want to be out here. Like to, to sneak in before everything starts to wake up. And then for them to, for the wildlife to wake up and not realize I'm there you just kind of get it's kind of cool to see wild animals doing wild animal shit like oh yeah for sure yeah i I shot my first deer like three years ago which is kind of unique for people in our industry right because everyone grew up hiking and you know going into the woods and you and i grew up in a very urban environment where that's like you know oh no bambi you know (laughs) like what like you're just getting our meat from uh from supermarkets and stuff like that and so and that's one of the big things about like you know even me as a knife maker um i'm kind of am one of the only guys that kind of grew up in an urban environment doing what i do now right all the other guys are like yeah i had a knife since i was five years old and I would go get lost in the woods, but I'm like, I, I grew up, you know, and, you know, it was 110 outside of Vegas and we'd just go riding our bikes around and, you know, go to Walmart and steal stuff, you know, stuff like that, you know. Allegedly. <laughs> we would allegedly steal stuff. Yeah, you know, you know, just borrow stuff, you know, we were, you know, that's the stuff that urban kids did, you know, just, um, and it's a very unique thing, right? And, uh, yeah, so very much latchkey kids as well. And so... Yeah, it was uh, 100% different than being a latchkey kid in the countryside, you know, so. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the culture shock was big. But see, for me, though, it was it was kind of cool because we got to experience where I'm at now a couple times when, uh, you know, there, there are certain things about COVID I miss. Like, I, I miss social distancing. I miss mandatory <laughs> seats being, uh, middle seats being required to stay open on airplanes, right? Yeah. And, um so we got to travel back and forth a couple times from Vegas here to visit Kelly's family. And each time I came, I was like, 
yeah, I could see myself living here. This is this place is pretty awesome. And then when I looked at the cost of living for like buying a, a house here, I was like, oh my god, are you kidding me? Ridiculous. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Let's go. Right. Um, unfortunately, the joke I always say to people was like, well, yeah, I came here from Vegas, and then Vegas followed me because now gas is the same price it was in Vegas when I left here. Uh, you know, the inflation and everything just keeps going up. So I'm literally like. My dollar is almost as good as it was in Vegas. But what that also means is that if I was still in Vegas, man, I'd be having, I'd be, uh, we'd be doing this podcast and I'd be in my car because that's where I'd be living. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah. so. Um, that's the thing, yeah. You know, um, I, I, you know, I guess I didn't mention, but I moved to Oregon and uh, same thing when we visited here. Um, it was absolutely beautiful, right? It's like Narnia out here where it's, you know, people think it's like sleepless in Seattle where it rains 99% of the time. You know, it's it's really it really doesn't. You know, it rains a lot in the winter time, but most of the time it's like a misty rain. It doesn't ever like downpour or, or thunderstorm out here very much. The summertime, it rains maybe once a month, if that, right? So, but I mean, it's just you know, you get the you know the highest it ever gets usually in the summertime here would be like mid eighties, and it's usually in the seventies and. Sun rises at five, sun sets at ten up here because we're higher up. So, you know, the kids will go to bed like at nine or something, and they're like, it's still bright outside, you know. And so, yep. um, but we just fell in love with how how beautiful it is out here, you know. Um, again, big culture change where in Vegas, you know, everyone's in a rush, right? It's a big concrete jungle. Everyone's trying to get to work or leave work, and the freeway. And no one crazy. left early, so everyone yeah. is. Yeah, I, yeah. I have to. I I need to get there first. It's like right, so high stress. Yeah, but when you drive it, you know, in the countryside or where there's a lot of trees and woods, you're like, I don't mind the drive. I don't mind taking my time and and you know, people let people in when they signal and stuff like that, which is you know, people don't honk their horns out here, which is weird, really weird. You cut them off, you see their hand like this above the horn, but they don't press it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so it's just it's just a big culture shock, and and it was something that we wanted for our kids and have them grow up and get wild and jump in the river and you know go get lost in the woods as well. Like basically give them the childhood that we wanted for ourselves, right? That we didn't really know, so. Yeah, basically, we're we're all now just trying to give our kids the Bluey life. If you watch Bluey, and for anyone that doesn't watch Bluey, I'm telling you, even as an adult, watch Bluey. It's a great, great show. If you want to have kids, it's a great show for you to learn how, like, emulate how to be a good parent. Um, if you don't want to have kids, it's still funny as hell because everyone you know that has kids, you'd be like, "Yep, I've seen them have to deal with that." You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my kid. You know, I think I'm I'm a pretty good dad. Being a dad is my passion, and you know, biggest reason why I do the things I do today. But, you know, when I watch Bluey, I'm like, I am a horrible father compared to this guy. <laughs> what I, is going on? I have to, uh, yeah, WWBD, what would Bandit do? Every time, <laughs> like, every time uh, the little one uh, for us, and, and she'll play the games that they do on Bluey. So at least I know how to play the game. But sure. man, sometimes it's just hard to be like, do I really have to, you know, pretend like you're a moving statue and every time I move you somewhere, <laughs> you disappear when I turn around? Like, I, you know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, like you said, sometimes you're just like, I, yeah, I understand it's a cartoon, it's a show, it's fake. And so he has an unlimited amount of energy versus us in the real world. Like, sometimes you're just kind of like, I, I just don't feel like playing right now. But even then, <laughs> even though sometimes I, I just kind of have to remind myself, like, um, hey, guess what? When When she's grown up, that's it. 
it's done. So maybe you just you know sacrifice a little bit now so you don't regret it later because uh, for for this this kid around versus you know my first kid, I I feel like with with Scarlett my my first daughter, I I, I was in a rush. Mm. I, I was like, start crawling, start walking. Let's let's get you out of diapers. Let's you know, I wanted her to be self sufficient sooner because I, was, I maybe I was still a little bit in a selfish mindset sure. as as a human. So this right. time around, it's it's been cool to to have a different perspective of appreciate her not being able to walk, appreciate yeah. her not you know, in, appreciate all the baby talk. She she mispronounces words. You can correct it every now and then, but at the same time, you're gonna miss the way she doesn't know how to say spaghetti you know yeah, so yeah yeah so a little I mean, different that's funny because this has become uh, more of a parent podcast now but yeah i mean that's the thing you know um you know my story is that you know i've lost both parents pretty early so that's always on the back of my mind and you know it's a crazy story about you know what happened to my dad or what you're involved with but um i didn't i didn't do anything like I did a positive thing. Don't don't, don't make it sound like yes. I, I choke. Yeah. I put him in a rear naked chokehold while we were sparring one day. And no, okay. no. So the, the gist of the story is that you know, um, you know, I did an article for ITS Tactical where it's like it's called "Lock Picking Saved My Dad's Life," and basically, you know, the gist of it was something happened with my dad physically, and you know, John was a, a EMT at the time, and. Um, yeah, so you know, I called him when there was an emergency that happened with my dad, and and uh, all that being said, but within that, from that incident, my dad probably passed away about six months after that incident. But you know, my mom also died when I was sixteen, so that's always on the back of my mind. Where I was like, oh, you know, I wish, you know, I maybe spent more time with her, or you know, just have a ton of regret when you're that young, right? And you know. When I had kids, I'm always like, oh, I don't want them to feel like I wasn't there, right? Mm. I don't want that. I don't want to ever yell at my kid where I'm busy working and telling it, telling them, oh no, I'm busy. You know, leave me alone because, you know, all they want to do is hang out with me. You know, it's like, um, and they don't understand. And as much as you work and you think you're providing for them and that's your duty as a parent, it is, but. You know, a lot of it, you know, when it comes down to it, you pretty much say, hey, I don't, it's not worth it at the end, right? Because um, that dollar, that thousand dollar, that $10,000 won't buy a single minute of time, right, um, mm -hmm. back. And, you know, you have, you know, daughters, and when they become teenagers, they want nothing to do with you, right? And so... Um, <laughs> and so i mean you have a very limited time with them and hopefully they come back when they're in their 20s and all that but um yeah that was the thing like i wish like you know my dad probably spent more time with me like to me you know i have very few memories of him uh minus him working all the time and again i didn't want that for my kids either so um that's the thing, you know, everyone always says you got to hustle, hustle, hustle this, in this generation, especially as an entrepreneur. And, you know, at this point, I actually run four businesses. And so uh, all by myself, I have one employee, but um, I try to spend as much time with my kids as possible, you know, so I always, you know, um, try to make them breakfast for school or take them to school and always say goodnight, even though I'm busy or whatever, I always try to spend at least one day a week with them, you know, um, with activities, playing games or whatever. But 
Um, that's that's one of the benefits of working at home, right? Because you're just right in the other room or right outside, or you know, my shop's outside my home, and uh, you know, I get to poop in my own toilet. That's like the best thing ever, right? I see that all the time. It's just yes. the best thing, you know. It's like, you know, um, but yeah, and you get to spend time <laughs> with your kids, right? I mean, you can make them lunch, you can stop whatever, and uh, and just hang out with them, right? So it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, I, I saw a quote the other day that was pretty, uh, pretty deep and meaningful for me when I when I read it, and it was the idea of uh, it said like, um, when you're gone, the only people that remember you worked late were your kids. Mm-hmm. Like your your boss won't care. Your you know, it's like yeah. they won't remember that. Oh yes, he used to work late all the time. He was such a great person for that. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. So. Right. Um, and yeah, I think you know, I think with the the, the whole aspect of you know, you got to hustle, make that make that green and stuff. I also think that kind of might might get a little lost in translation because it's the the hustle is to make money, but it's also to do it the smart way, not to do it the super hard. I'm gonna work myself the bone kind of way, you know. So um, that's kind of what it, I think when that comes down to it. You know, people just kind of get confused, thinking like, "Oh, that just means I have to, I have to work really, I have to stay out and constantly be making money." In reality, it's like, well, we should be trying to do things for ourselves. Um, you know, I'm trying to start a holster company right now, so that's right. been an interesting thing. You know, it's like the whole thing of like, "Man, I don't have any orders today. This sucks." But then <laughs> orders come in, and and all of a sudden, it's like, "Oh my gosh, I've got to make 20 packages and send them out," you know, in a timely manner and stuff. And so you're just busy as hell, but. Um, yeah. Well, with that being said, I'll, I'll tell you what. Yes, we we have gone to a parent podcast. Let's kind of get back to uh, a little bit about what's going on because, you, like I said in your intro, you started out with Rifle Dynamics, uh, building AKs under under the tutelage of Jim Fuller, uh, who <laughs> apparently didn't like retirement because he went to Phoenix and reopened up a new shop, uh, building AKs. But um, let's talk about what what kind of got you into that line of work to begin with because like you know I, I i understand like someone that's a gun fan and then they just decide to start learning how to build guns but like when when i was when you were there i got to build my ak um together i i didn't do all the parts but i kind of helped and like i learned real quick how much i hate like sanding and polishing and and all the very very tedious stuff that that has to happen i not hate but i just what i was an action shooter right everything i wanted to do was fast um mm -hmm. But when you get into building uh, platforms and, and firearms and stuff like that, obviously, it's about quality, not quantity, when you're in, in a company like Rifle Dynamics. Um, so, yeah, talk a little bit about how you got into the passion of gunsmithing and, and manufacturing of firearms. Okay, so what got me interested in, in guns in the first place, obviously, um, sorry, I've got a text message. Um, is obviously, uh, since you're in an urban environment, movies, right? You wanted to, you know, you watched Rambo or, you know, um, Boys in the Hood, right? <laughs> <laughs> Menace Society, right? <laughs> you're aging yourself here. <laughs> uh, and so, like, you know, our, or my background with guns is that they were a cool thing. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to learn this and be like a fast competitive shooter or a, a tactical shooter or something like that it was just like oh wow this thing is cool it's like you know it it was it was strictly like the movies right and so i've always had a a love for guns and 
I think when I, I got my first gun, which was a, a Mossberg 500 shotgun, um, and um, I was like 18 years old, and I was working at the mall um, at um, at uh, a sunglass store. It was like a competitor to Sunglass Hut, and okay. you know, we sold Oakleys there, and you know they had the really high-end Oakleys, and so... Um, I met a guy there and he's, he's like, you want to trade for a shotgun? And I was like, uh, so I bought the sunglasses from that place at my employee price and traded that guy for a shotgun. So that was like my very first gun I ever bought. And I still have it, you know, it's a Mossberg Persuader. Um, and then, you know, I bought my first gun, uh, a handgun at 21. And, you know, I never thought about being in the gun industry and things like that. It was just like something like cool to me to have, own a gun right and i was yeah. a very much a, uh not you know a casual shooter at that point right because you know we were young and i was in college and you know spending money for a box of ammo could mean a meal for two days right so i'm very much just like a casual shooter more like a collector felt cool having a gun showing it off and stuff like that and then you know I got my college degree, you know, I got a, um, a religious degree at Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri. And, um, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of nonprofit work as well. And, you know, working with a bunch of community centers, um, churches and things like that, um, working with like troubled teens, because obviously I had a, a little bit of a gray background, right, <laughs> where I did naughty things I shouldn't have done in Las Vegas. Um, but hey, it was the 90s, right? Gangs were cool and stuff like that, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and so, um, but you know, once that kind of, you know, I also obviously was still a performer, right? I was a pro professional break dancer uh, with a group called Knucklehead Zoo, uh, which are, they were actually five times um, US representatives for like the world championships. So they were essentially five time national champions and represented the United States uh, at, the world's biggest, you know, competition at the time called Battle of the Year, um, and that was in Germany. So um, I think the highest we ever placed was like fourth in the world. But um, so I was also working at a magic show in Vegas um, at the Planet Hollywood, um, doing, uh, you know, performing on stage and also doing like assistant pyrotechnics, which basically means I was just taping little fireworks to these fake magical props, right? <laughs> um, and so that kind of like, you know, the show went under and, you know, um, I really wasn't working at churches anymore. And then a friend of mine, he actually had a Las Vegas uh, shooting um, forum, right? Because forums are really big before Facebook. This is around 2008. And so uh, one of the sponsors on the, the forum was Rifle Dynamics. And when people think of Rifle Dynamics, it wasn't the company that it is today back then. Um, and so um, he was like, hey, I just saw that you were recently out of work. You want to basically a job with one of my sponsors? I'm like, well, what is it? What is it? He's like, I don't know. Just just go and, and check it out. And I'll just set up an interview. So this is literally like... Um, uh, a week after I stopped working. And so I showed up to an interview dressed all nice. And then Jim goes, all right, let's get to work. I'm like, oh, what am I doing? He's like, you're demailing parts kits. So basically, you know, 
I'm grinding off all the sheet metal off foreign made AKs and they're covered in cosmoline. I'm dressed all nice and you know, smack you know, basically like whacking out rivets and stuff like that. And it's, it's something I've never ever done before. So it was just kind of like something um, I was inter interested in trying because I'd always liked guns. Um, I always felt like I was a handy guy because I've, I've worked on cars before. And by work on cars, I mean, I mean Asian you know, hasn't parts of my car because I was too poor to <laughs> <laughs> to hire someone else to do it, right? Um, and so, um, and, and so, I I demailed my first, and and uh, he's like, "You think this is something you can do?" And I was like, yeah, "I think so." And so he basically paid me per parts kit that I did. So I was just it wasn't a real job at that point. It was just hired on piecework right so at the time they had this giant wall that had a like a bunch of shelves that were like from ground to ceiling almost inside this giant warehouse and it was full of parts kits and orders that need to be demilled i think there were i can't remember how many of them there were in there maybe six or seven hundred of them maybe right it was just a lot um and so I show up and you know how my Asian mindset is where I'm like, okay, well, if he's paying me by piecework, let me sign, set this up like assembly line style and do as many as I can in this, in this time frame. And so apparently the guy that was doing it before me was doing like one a day, demilling one parts kit a day. So I show up and I line up like five and I do five and I was like, okay, that's pretty quick. All right. I'm out of here within, you know, one or two hours. Then the next day I'll show up and do 10, then 15. And so, in a very short amount of time, I was probably making more than anyone at the company, right? Just <laughs> demilling these parts kits in such, such a short amount of time. And I think within two months, I did all like 700 of them, right? And uh, and then Jim offered me a job. He's like, uh, you're pretty squared away, so do you want a job? And so, you know, I started from the very bottom. You know, at that point, I maybe shot one AK in my life, you know, um, mm -hmm. like a, a cheapo Waster 10. Um, that some guy had when we went shooting one time in the desert. But so at this point I had, you know, um, even when I was demilling, I wasn't hundred percent even sure like what all the parts did. Cause I never, you know, I, I, at that point I probably built an AR, but never really got into AKs. Right. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's an ugly gun or something. Right. I was just, it wasn't the cool guy gun where you know you see in movies, right? It's it's I the cause, it, yeah. It's it's the communist gun. It's the gun all the bad guys always have. It's the one all that, the poor uh, guys always had, right? In the yeah, movies. exactly. You know, so um, no so, no no U.S. special operators movie showed them using AKs. They were always using right. ARs. Yeah. So again, I, at that point, only shot an AK once, and so when I started, you know, basically I started from the very bottom. He was like, "You want to sandblast these guns after they get test fired," and so. I was a sandblaster, you know, just, you know, just, you know, even blasting the parts. I was like, I have no idea what I'm blasting, you know, for <laughs> some of the parts, right. I'm like, what is this weird, like weird shaped thing? Right. So, mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah. And I was like doing that for probably about like four months and it was just miserable work. Like the sandblasting is, you know, it's, oh man, it's like you, you stand behind that cabinet and you're like, what am I doing with my life? Right. You have a lot of time to think and zone out and, you know, it's, it's very painful on the body and, and, you know, um, and so after, you know, a couple months, you know, I was hoping that, you know, that I would have other opportunities and they did come. And so after probably a, a, about four months, you know, they asked me, Hey, do you want to start doing some final assembly on the guns? And I was like, sure. And so 
Um, once they came out of paint, you know, we, you know, oiled them up and final assemble them before a final test fire. And so I was doing final assembly and they found that really quickly. They just need to show me how to do something one time. And I just remember how to do it. So then it, it just kind of progressed really quickly from there within, you know, probably another month, month and a half. They're like, Hey, you want to start building them? So I started building AKs with Jim and obviously there was, you know, mistakes that were made, but for the most part, and I picked up really quickly. Um, then they're like, Hey, do you want to uh, start painting these guns? I was like, I have a graffiti background, right? <laughs> I'm urban. I can do it. So I started painting all the guns, right? And then so um, at the time, we were probably only three guys in a basically a, a small garage. That's how small Rifle Dynamics was at the time. And um, and it started growing quickly. Um, you know, at the time, we really catered only to, like, firearms training guys because um, – I don't know, maybe they, at the time, maybe Jim didn't think big time as far as like being a big known commercial company that it is today. Um, but it was just more like, hey, if you know, you know, in the training community that rifle dynamics guns, they don't ever fail, stuff like that at the time. And so, um, so they're very much focused on the training community back then. And so I think I started doing things where, you know, I started you know, order any parts and kind of have a little bit more freedom. And so within, I think once within, I want to say, I want to say three years or it might be two years. They made me production manager uh, of rifle dynamics. And then, you know, just, I just started saying, Hey, let's kind of like, you know, see what we can do. Let's really see if we can make the guns look really good as well. Um, as, as well as, you know, they're known, reliability at that point so um we, i just focused and, and drove a hard nail saying these guns really need to look good we need to drive it uh, drive a, a new customer base or we kind of say hey this is why we can justify the price that we were charging because they look phenomenal and so even if there was like a scratch on the gun i would just be like all right let's refinish it you know and mm -hmm. um and so yeah, it was um, it was an interesting time. You know, I started really focusing on you know building industry relationships with people that are outside the AK community. You know, working with you know um, Silence Co. and you know um, we did a run of um, three hundred blackout AKs, um, and it was a uh, it was just something to do because Silence Co. wanted to try something, and it wasn't. Um, um, I wasn't there for the production release of those, but you know, I, I was there for the prototypes that we built and we probably built one of the first, uh, 300 blackout AKs. And mostly again, it's just for, for giggles because, you know, it's 762 by 39. We really don't, you know, it, what's the point of having 300 blackout minus it doing it for a silencer company. But right. I started getting barrels from like Pacnor where, you know, they're known for their crazy accuracy and their relationship with Noveski and uh, started working with, you know, aim point, the guys at aim point and just, just kind of like elevating our brand. Right. And, um, then our company just kind of exploded and, you know, we kind of grew to, I think at the time we grew to three buildings, which, you know, it was, you know, we grew from, I think it was like 1500 square foot to maybe six to 8,000 square foot. Uh, probably mm -hmm. went to at one point close to close to 30 employees at one point, I think. 
and um yeah and and yeah it was kind of a interesting journey seeing how fast it grew um and then within two years after being production manager uh, i became actually a partner in the company so i was essentially promoted to a co-owner of the a company so hmm. uh, so yeah that was kind of like my my journey it was always that i was always really good with my hands um i learned really quickly i didn't have any machining experience before I started at Rifle Dynamics. But then I realized how much I enjoyed making stuff on machines. And so picked it up really quickly and uh, started developing my own techniques and um, doing these strange, bizarre one-off projects that are a, you know, a bunch of Frankenstein guns or putting a, a triangle side folder on a Saiga 12 shotgun and um, and I think I was probably one of the first ones to do it in America, actually. Um, putting triangle side folders on uh, a 308 Saiga, and we were definitely the first ones to do that. Um, but just doing a bunch of random crazy things, right? So um, I had a signature gun with them where it was an 8-inch barrel Saiga 12 shotgun um, that they they named it the Cho gun. I didn't, but that name just kind of stuck. Um, and then, you know, and then right... Oh yeah, we started doing build classes as well. So that was uh, my project with uh, Gene Higdon, formerly of HSGI. Uh, we decided to do a, our a build class, and um, that kind of exploded for RD as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my pet project with them. Same thing with the Sound um RD collaboration stuff. That was my pet project, um, and then yeah, it just kind of it just kind of grew, and then yeah, it just grew so big that I was kind of like, I don't know. I think at that point I started kind of babysitting and um, I wanted to try to do new stuff. I think I've kind of maxed out my skills at that point. And then, you know, at at that point, my, my dad just died as well. And so I just, oh, and my first son was born at the same time. So it was, it just kind of threw my life in a whirlwind where I thought, hey, um, am I really happy here still? Right? Am I excited to come to work? Am I excited to make stuff? And I know when you get into like a, um, a owner or managerial role, you're a lot of times people stop building stuff, and a lot of times it just becomes babysitting and saying, "Hey, why are you late? I'm gonna have to punish you for being late. You gotta be that bad guy, boss kind of thing." Which it was not my thing, you know. Mm. And um, and not only that, I was so much of a perfectionist at that point i was i came off as a dick you know sometimes to my employees because um i realized that you know it was my reputation on the line and it was jim's reputation on the line on these guns and so when whenever something wasn't perfect i would sometimes berate them torture them make them exercise or something you know <laughs> <laughs> Um, what what an Asian martial arts way to punish people! <laughs> I realized that hold your every, knuckles out. Whack! <laughs> I realized everyone kind of like yes, discip takes discipline in different levels, right? Like so, one employee would would constantly be late, and so for me to affect discipline him, where it kind of stuck, was to like send him home, basically to make him lose money. Where he's like, oh no, right? Mm -hmm. And so one other employee, if you tell him to go home, he'd be like, okay, see you later. Bye. Right. And so 
for him, I was like, this guy, I'm going to have to torture him by making him exercise, right? Because he hated exercising. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, drop and give me a hundred, right? Stuff like that, right? Go go run around the, the building a few times or else, you know, I'm going to murder you, right? But, um, <laughs> but uh, so every employee kind of like, you know, took discipline in a different different way. But I was very much a, a lot tougher than them. Uh, back then, um, then I should have probably been just because, you know, I was young and, you know, I was obsessed, right? And I was mm. one of those crazy sometimes, um, I don't want to compare it to like Steve Jobs, but very much that attitude where saying, hey, you know, this needs to be perfect. Why can't it be perfect kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And so well, it's very, it's very difficult to to hand over control of something, especially when you're you were the one that either developed it or perfected it and stuff like that. And then you hand it over to someone. And then as soon as you see them start to do something differently, you're like, oh, you know, what? you're you're ruining it. Give it back to me. Well, no. instead of just being like, OK, well, let's let's see. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm always encouraging someone to do it better than me. Right. I'm always like, if you can find it, do it a way to do it faster or better do it but if you do it slower than me i'm like why can't you be at least as good as me and we cycled through a lot of employees and it wasn't me firing them and it was always a team so it was never like i'm like i don't like that guy let's fire them you know mm-hmm. it's always like uh the team of management will say hey let's go uh we don't like this guy because he's not pulling his weight let's get rid of him billy you tell him to come into the office. So it makes it look like I'm the bad guy, but it was never <laughs> a solo decision by me. So, you know, um, but if you're good, I, I want you to stick around, right? And so, but at that point, my dad has died, realized I wasn't really happy um, where I was, you know, it's mostly babysitting, getting into arguments with investors. Um, and so I got into one final argument with a uh, the office secretary about with one of the investors and I was like, all right, I'm done. And they're like, what do you mean you're done? I was like, I'm leaving. And they're like, what do you mean you're leaving? I'm leaving the company. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? I had no backup plan, but because my life was so crazy, I just had my first kid and my dad just died a month after my, my kid was born. And when I was cleaning out his apartment, my dad's apartment, I was like, there's so much trash here. Was my dad really happy? I don't know. So I was like, I just want to be happy. I want my kids to be happy. And this probably, this place probably isn't for, uh, isn't it for me. So, um, I just said, okay, um, I, I'm not going to do you dirty. I basically said, you know, um, I'm going to leave. I don't know when you find whoever you want. I'll train whoever you want. And then I'm going to find something else. <clears throat> and so, um, yeah, and that's what happened. And so I left, um, rifle dynamics probably, um, maybe three months after that, that conversation with them. And, you know, it was, it wasn't an easy thing to do. It was bittersweet. Right. Um, you know, at that point, you know, me and Jim still have a, a good relationship today, you know, um, but we, we've kind of built this relationship where we were, we're basically the, the Cheech and Chong of the AK, um, industry. And, uh, He's Cheech. I'm probably Chong, right? Just because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Well, you know, it was funny because prior to the work that I got to do with Rifle Dynamics, where I would come in and do test firing for you guys, um, you know, the, the 
the general consensus among the firearm community was that AKs were not necessarily... They, yeah, sure, they were reliable, but you can't hit a broadside of a barn with them, especially once it starts going out of distance. And right. one of the things you guys were able to prove to the firearms world was, um, yeah, you can. You just suck at doing it. Like, it's not yeah. the gear. It's the shooter. It's not the arrow. It's the Indian kind of thing, right? And now, like, I feel the AK world has blown up recently, um, and and it's funny because it's you almost see it like I know there's AK matches that are out there, but they're not really matches because when I when I consider something a match, top level guys are going and everyone's competing and we're trying to figure out who the best is. When you go to an AK match though, and I'm going to use match in quotations fingers here, it's more about the community and no one really gives a shit about the results except for the top level shooters that go there to shoot the match. And maybe, you know, there's guns on the prize table or something like that. So for us, we want to go and get something out of our investment, which is to try and win the guns and whatnot. But you go to an AK match and it's probably some of the most fun you're ever going to have because you're, you're squatted with these people that are, you know, wearing track suits and gold chains and Russian kits and, you know, dressed like Russian soldiers or whatever. They're, they're more about right. they're having fun. They're, they're shooting their rifle in a condition where they probably never have before with having to engage targets and shoot on the move and maybe even have to do mandatory reloads on the clock and stuff. So it's, it's way more of a fun experience than it is a uh, stressful competition. It's definitely much more about the experience than it is about the competition when you go to some of these AK shoots and, and AK events. And so that was something that was, I was pretty cool to be able to, to watch that shift of um, AKs aren't a, a serious fighting rifle and they shouldn't be meant for anything other than, you know, buying the $300 cheap SKS from Big Five Sporting Goods and then just going out because you, you can't afford a real rifle. Now it's like you can do a lot of cool shit with an AK now. Um, yeah. So it's yeah, been cool to watch sure. that grow. I mean, yeah, now, you was... talked about. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, so so you talked about how much you enjoyed uh, making your own parts, doing machining, and all that kind of stuff. And now you've you branched from well, not now you've been doing it for a while, but you branched from manufacturing firearms into becoming a knife maker. And what I'd like to ask you about that is, um, I mean, how did that start? Because I feel like you know, when, once you're a fireman or once you're a firearms guy, like that's what your world revolves around on. And mm -hmm. knives are cool. And, and I've started to appreciate knives a whole lot more than now that I've, I've bought in a few that are, are nicer, higher end and, and stuff like that. So I can have a new appreciation for it. But to go from making firearms to all of a sudden being like, I want to learn more about metal. I want to learn more about forging i want to learn more like how how did that transpire because it's it's not like it's i mean there there's i guess there's steps you can take to get into becoming a right. knife maker am i correct yeah for sure you know um it's funny because when i left rifle dynamics I, I wanted to basically learn more skills i've had right when i left i had a bunch of investors come and say hey i'll give you 10 million dollars to start an ak shop and i was like no no i'm, I'm burnt out i want to learn more about the other side like manufacturing so um, I actually became a director at Radiant Weapons for about three years because um, I wanted to learn more about CNC machining and I felt like they were probably doing it the best uh, in America right them and um, you know John Sharps was making incredible lowers as well um, very intricate detailed stuff and it was something that I didn't know how to do and at that point um, I started um, I started collecting knives before uh, I started uh, making them and 
it's funny how that came about was you know the the gun industry is very ignorant about the custom knife world and it's pretty funny because if you post a knife and say hey this was a thousand dollar knife and then the gun industry would just kind of just come after you like what kind of an idiot are you you don't you don't need a thousand dollar knife you know i have my box cutter and my fifteen dollar you know gerber that i got from walmart or a thrift store this is all you need and they're 100 percent true right but um what i quick quickly realized was that um custom knives were also considered art and a very hot commodity and because they were and they were very limited especially with really popular knife makers that they had a strong secondary value on them for example if you were to buy a knife for 600 you can from a famous maker um, directly from them you can often flip it for over three thousand dollars so mm. so people in the gun industry have no idea because you know i, I hate to say it, but a lot of times the gun industry caters to people that are always looking for sales and deals and waiting for a Labor Day sale or a Black Friday sale to buy their gun parts and ammo, right? And that's very much the opposite in the knife world. The knife world, it's the people are very much like the AK world where they're super friendly, super respectful, and you know, they like collecting knives from essentially who they consider artists. And so when someone is buying a $50,000 knife and people call them stupid, uh, they don't realize they could probably sell that knife for 200,000, mm. like in, a, in an instant. Right. And so, um, there is, um, so when I started off as a collector, I was just buying and selling knives, um, keeping the ones I wanted to keep flipping the ones I wanted to flip. And it was like an additional $30,000 a year in my pocket, just by buying and buying and selling, not doing anything, just kind of saying, Hey, I have this brand new knife from this maker. Do you want it? This is the price. Um, very similar to the watch industry, right? Because like, for example, Rolexes, um, the markets kind of tanked a little bit, but at one point you could buy a Rolex for, you know, 9,000 and sell it for 30,000, right? And so um, the knife world is very much the same. So um, I kind of didn't want to reveal the secret because I don't want a bunch of crazy gun people coming into our world i'm just kidding no um <laughs> but yeah it's, it's very much that 100 uh, there's obviously people that just enjoy collecting knives but there is a a lot of money in there because nobody really needs a really expensive knife besides people that are on the one percent and so um you'll have auctions and i mean i mean it's crazy you know um the just the amount of money you'll see um you know, live auctions where you'll see a guy that's a farmer, right? He's just wearing like, it's funny. They will, he'll wear like a $20,000 watch, but like, you know, $10 overalls and dirty boots. And he's bidding on a knife that he wants against a guy that's bidding for a Sultan somewhere. And yeah. the guy's wearing a suit on a phone calling this guy or a celebrity. But that's very much the knife world. It's very like diverse and mixed between all the customer bases and but there's a lot of money involved in that and so um obviously if you make a knife that's not popular no one's gonna buy it but if you have a very desirable model 
there is a ton of money on top of that. So people don't realize that. Like, oh, you don't need a... If you're buying a $600 knife, you're an idiot. Oh, no. You just don't know, right? It's just mm -hmm. like... Um, same thing, well, I guess, with the handbag market, which I don't know, you know, which, you know, women are... Uh, or some men are obsessed with, right? Where um, some bags will be like, you know, $1,000, but you can flip them because they're so limited. That's very much the knife world. So I started off as a collector and then... You know, going to these knife shows, and the knife shows are completely different than gun shows. For example, the knife show, if you see a maker there and he has knives on his table, you can't be like, hey, can I come buy that knife that's on your table? They'll say no. He's like, what? Well, you're saying, well, there's a price tag on there, and it's still there. Why can't I buy it? He's like, oh, you have to enter a lottery for a chance to buy one. It's, oh. not, a, it's not a lottery for a free knife. It's just a lottery for a chance to buy one because they're so limited and because you can flip them instantly. Like I've seen at shows where someone will buy a knife for $1,500 and sell it to the guy behind them for like four or $5,000, like in an cool. instant, instantly. So there's a lot of uh, money and things like that changing hands inside these knife shows. But most of these knife shows, that's not like a, a swap meet, right? If you go to a gun, a gun show, people are selling beef jerky, you know, the, the knife, <laughs> the knife boot of boost over there they have like a bucket of swords where it's like five dollars per sword right it's like right. one of those uvc style ones where you bang it on a table break and hit you in the stomach right yeah uh, is the knife shows are not like that at all so there's very famous knife shows like the california custom knife show um uh the usn uh gathering in vegas uh there's the new york city knife show the nashville knife show Arts and Metals, uh, Blade Show, Blade Show Texas. There's like a, a big knife show like this every month, somewhere in the world or somewhere in the country. And uh, us knife makers will just kind of migrate to these shows, but you can't go there and just buy a knife from a knife maker. Oftentimes you have to enter a lottery for a chance to buy one, which is, um, this is why you have people like camp outside and it's crazy. Um, and so going back, I, was, I went to a knife show called the USN Gathering in Vegas. And I met a knife maker named Sean Kendrick. And, um, you know, I opened up his, one of his folding knives and I was like, oh my gosh, the feeling is completely different if you've never handled a custom folding knife compared to a production one. Um, the feeling is completely different. It just felt, I've never felt like anything in, in my life at that point, like how it felt when it opened in my hand. And I was like, dude, can you teach me? And he's like, yeah, sure. It was, it was crazy, you know, and, you know, nowadays, you know, Sean is, um, you know, um, his knives sell for, you know, five figures, right? Um, but at the time, he wasn't that big at the time. And so, um, and the funny thing is, he was essentially like the complete opposite of me. He was very much into, you know, like, very much into like a death metal. He had like a beard, like a wizard, right? <laughs> and I was very much the hip hop guy, but I was just asking him to teach me basically purely on how his knives felt and looked and functioned. So, so he's like, yeah, sure. So he invited me over to his house in Aberdeen, Ohio, you know, this very small town, no cell phone service. Right. And so I spent four days with this guy making knives and, uh, yeah, it was kind of like, um, you know, at that point I was just a AK builder, right. A, a gun builder. Cause you know, even though I've known, I'm known for my AKs, I've kind of built a little bit of everything, right? Worked on 
sub guns and bolt guns and all that. But I was predominantly known for uh, known for my AKs. But you know, at the time I was just AK builder and the collector and and so I've made stuff, right? And when I first finished that first knife, that feeling I got was like, holy crap! I I, I designed this from scratch and then I made it into like the world's oldest tool, like a functioning knife. And the feeling is like, I don't know, it's really hard to describe. It's like, you know, I always call it creative satisfaction because you're like, you know, you know, you want to kind of like jump up and down. You're so excited, right? Because everything kind of works and you made it. And so I always say this as an analogy, like people like, what do you like better knives or guns? I'm like, I always love guns. Right. And, um, even if I won the lottery and was a billionaire, I would still make guns because that's how much I love them. And the same applies for knives, but with guns, they have to be built a certain way to be a gun, right? There's like a, you know, you have to have a place to put a bullet, right? <laughs> there's, there's gotta, uh, uh, there's gotta be a barrel contrary to some of these modifications you see on people's guns. There's gotta be a barrel, right? Uh, <laughs> There's got to be a way to, you know, hit that primer and hopefully the pressure will bring that bolt back somehow, whether it's gas pressure or, or, you know, um, gas blowback or whatever. Right. Um, and, uh, and so if you don't do that, it kind of ceases to be a gun, but when it comes to knife making, if you, you can basically make whatever you want, you can make a giant, uh, I always say <laughs> you can make a giant cock and balls with out of metal and you still feel that creative satisfaction because you're like, I've designed this and I've made this. Sorry, children. Um, I'm just trying to picture what that knife would look like. (laughs) I mean, you can make literally whatever you want and you're like, wow, I've made this. And that's, that's the biggest difference between making a knife and a gun. And also, you know, a lot of people don't know, um, is that when you're uh, a gun builder in America, you're technically not allowed to give um, any information about how to build these guns or anything about guns to people that live outside the America, right? right <laughs> and so, of ITAR. There's, yep, there's a lot of ITAR rules, and I can't just sell a gun to a guy in you know, China, right? I can't, yeah, anywhere, anywhere outside of America, right? Even Canada, right? Um, Without special paperwork and and, and all that, right? Uh, With a knife, you can, I can sell a knife to anyone in the whole world, no problem, right? Um, Obviously, you have to do based off their laws. Like, for example, Korea can't have a a folding knife that's the blade's longer than two and a half inches. So obviously, Mm -hmm. it has to follow under those guidelines, but you know, I've sold knives to people in Dubai, the Netherlands, Thailand, Japan, Korea, Russia, right? It's just all over the place. It's kind of crazy thinking that my knives are all over the world. It's crazy. I've seen a guy, I, I made a, a knife for a guy in the Netherlands. He's had it for a few years and sold it to some guy that basically years later that lives probably about five minutes away from me now. So it's kind of made like this whole round trip back to Oregon where I live. And it's, uh, it's kind of crazy. And so, um, so you have a lot more financial freedom to sell to whoever you want, um, when you're a knife maker as well. 
But that's the biggest thing is that they're a commodity. Um, but obviously, you have to make a desirable product. So just because you have a name in the gun industry, um, just because uh, you may be a decorated hero, right? Um, your knives might not sell, right? Because you have to have a desirable product. Um, you know, a great example about this would be, um, let's look at the, the Magpul knife that came out, right? You guys remember that when the Magpul knife came out a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah. And so no one in the knife industry wanted that knife. So as far as collectors wise, and, um, you know, the funny thing, a lot of us, you know, not, I want to say not a lot of us, but a lot of people, I want to say, I want to say a lot of us, I don't want to put us, put me under that, was making fun of the way it looked, right? Because it essentially, it kind of looked like a, a copy of a, of a knife that was made by a designer that we all made fun of, right? Um, and so, um, no one in the knife collecting world wanted that Magpul knife. I don't know a single person that has one, but I mean, the gun, the gun industry kind of like w went crazy over it. I don't understand, but, um, but obviously the, I think that knife's probably a little bit collectible. I think it sells for a little bit more than what the retail is. And people that were in the gun industry was giving people who bought those knives crap because they were like, oh, that knife's too expensive. Why would you even buy that? And then, and then people are flipping them and then they're like, oh, these guys are horrible. I'm like, no, that's, it's a normal thing in the knife industry, right? And it's 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 so funny, but yeah, that's that's very much it. Like, um, I'm I'm very fortunate enough to be able to um, make knives, and make a living off it because it's very difficult. Um, I fortunately built up um, a lot of skills in knife making by building AKs, actually, right? Learning how to machine, grinding off rivets. I didn't realize I was learning how to hollow grind a knife um, all those years, just grinding off a grinding wheel and grinding rivets off. Um, so I picked up knife making very quickly. You know, it's it's uh, it's almost been 10 years now since I've been making knives, which is crazy to think. Um, it's going to be 10 years in January. And, um, yeah, my knives have always sold out. I'm seven-year backlogged, backlogged on my knives. And, uh, and my knives start around $1,000. And uh, it's, it's uh, the fact that people still want them and I get hit up all the time. Once I post the knife, people just want to buy it. Um, I just feel really fortunate, you know, that that's the case, you know, because, um, you know, there's, I mean, there's a ton of knife makers that don't make it, right? And so, um, and so I just feel really, really lucky to be able to do what I like. Um, and again, with the same thing with guns, I would still make knives um, every day and until the day I can't. So, if I could be 80 years old or 90 years old making knives, I'm still going to do it, right? So um, just because I feel like it's like a legacy as well. You know, knives mm -hmm. will pretty much last hopefully forever, right? We still find arrowheads and things like that that are hundreds of years old, right? Um, so hopefully when I'm long gone that somebody will still be using my knives and collecting my, my knives, trying to collect all the ones that are out there and stuff like that. And so, um, but I overall still just enjoy it, even though it's really hard on the body, right? People don't think, oh, it's, uh, it's so easy to make, right? Uh, it's not, it's, it's very much, um, hard on your body. A lot of looking down a lot. That's why a lot of knife makers have like a hunchback eventually because mm -hmm. they're looking down a lot. 
a lot now, of how, yeah. how extensive is your knife making studio like are you are you buying materials and then just machining them or are you actually forging your own materials like what what how extensive is your studio right so typically in the knife world there's uh there's several different styles but the two biggest um categories or, or the split down the line is what they consider forging or stock removal forging is obviously what you see on a tv show right where where basically they'll take raw metals and they'll hammer it out and then uh you know they'll you know shape the knife with hot metals right with a hammer or power hammer or a hydraulic press and things like that and then stock removal is is what i do basically buying sheets of uh known steel right so um so something that's um a very common steel would be like d2 for carbon steel 3v um and a common stainless would be like you know uh, cpm 154 or um s35v those kind of things so um i'm i'm personally not in uh into forging myself right which which um it's because i don't think it suits my style and i can't justify the cost of forging and you know taking four or five days to forge a damascus billet and then turning that into a knife or a folding knife and justifying the price where i would price myself out of the market right because you're like saying this took me a week's worth of work and it's not even a knife yet and then you guys spend another month so I'm like, okay, so this is going to be a $25,000 knife, you know? And so you got to kind of like weigh the, uh, weigh the cost, even like people that are master smiths and forging, sometimes they don't get that kind of money at all. Right. And they'll spend mm. a very long time working on a knife. So, um, my, my influences have always been like, you know, sci-fi and, um fantasy right i was i was very much a kid that grew up watching dragon ball z and watching power rangers and chinese kung fu movies right um and um and all those things are are basically the cool thing about being a knife maker is you can kind of use that to influence your style and your 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 blade design and your handle design and and things like that right um and so I don't think for me forging doesn't fit that style for me. So, um, for if I ever wanted to make, uh, I use Damascus quite a bit. If you, if you guys see my my pictures on my knives, I use Damascus quite a bit, and and I buy that usually typically from friends of mine, right? That that forge it. Uh, Chad Nichols uh, is a, a really big one in our community, um, and uh, he forges all kinds of crazy Damascus. So people don't realize that you can just buy Damascus billets from guys that make Damascus, right? So it's just um, like Chad doesn't really make knives. He just sells his Damascus. It's kind of crazy. Um, but he's he's kind of got it down to a science where I know a lot of famous gun guys that are using Damascus on their guns. You can probably figure out who they are, um, have come to him about how to, how to make billets to make gun parts, 1911 parts or whatever, right? And so, um, but... Going back to that forging versus stock removal, I feel like stock removal fits my style better. So what I do is I mostly make uh, tactical folding knives. Um, and in fact, I'm actually the only Korean American tactical folder maker. Um, 
or I would say a, a semi-successful one. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people trying now because there's there's a million knife makers out there. Um, so I buy raw titanium um, to make used for handles, but I also buy like exotic materials like you know um, zirconium. Right? People don't realize that zirconium is what they put in explosive rounds, like Ralphus rounds, right? Where um, you see the armor piercing explosive because powdered zirconium uh, is very uh, explosive, right? <laughs> so, mm. uh, so if you if I grind down zirconium, right? and light that dust on fire is like a firework it's like a big flash right but the cool thing about zirconium is people like it because it's like a hundred percent corrosion resistant so people use it for knife handles but if you like basically um sand it down into basically like so it just looks like a piece of metal right just a nice sanded piece of metal if you get that zirconium red hot and let it cool down it develops like this crazy black oxide on the outside that's like super tough and, and super cool looking. So, um, so knife makers use zirconium, which typically used by military to make explosive rounds to make black handles. Right? <laughs> uh, but then it's also like, um, the crazy thing is what's popular with knives, right? So even like, um, there's a thing called micarta, right? A lot of people know micarta as similar to like Bakelite, right? Because Bakelite, everyone knows about Bakelite, AK magazines. It's like essentially uh, the Russian's version of plastic, right? So uh, micarta was kind of similar where in the, I would say the 50s era, there was like a, a micarta making company factories all over America where they would press sheets of resin and either paper or cloth or bags or rags right and they would basically layer uh, a piece of micarta or a bunch of micarta like sometimes it's like shredded fabric and then a layer of epoxy micarta epoxy and then they'll press it and makes basically makes like the uh, like early version of plastic back then right and so mm. they use this material for anything from countertops to you know um electrical like prote protective stuff right so all that stuff has become incredibly valuable in the knife world. So people use that to make knife handles and a lot of it is vintage. So sometimes a piece of micarta that's like, you know, like this big might be like $1,500 just for the raw part. Uh, people use mother of pearl, right? Um, people use gems, people use gold, right? It's, it's uh, people use mammoth tusks. It's just like a whole crazy, uh, range there's people that just sell knife making material it's kind of crazy and they've been they've been around for some of them almost 100 years so um and mark my cool. that 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 stuff kind of ends up having that look that like uh g10 grips or uh yeah vz yeah. grips kind of look right where it's like that layered look of like it's black and then gray and then black and gray and black, and that's where yeah. you can get a lot of those so g, stuff, g10 lot of is essentially like the predecessor is that the predecessor oh, to micarta right so it oh, no, no the, it it was it's like the uh <laughs> what's the word the cheap the cheap child the cheaper <laughs> child <laughs> but it came so out my, my carta is like the specialized version whereas like the the g10 stuff is more like the the cheaper easier to produce without 
What I think the Carta came out. Uh, I mean, G10 came out after my Carta because you know my Carta is old technology, right? There's o- only specialized people that are kind of making it now. Uh, whereas back then, it used to be on everything. Like it was inside refrigerators to, you know, cups to trays to anything you can imagine that that was had plastic on it was usually my Carta, right? Uh, toys, mm-hmm. bowling balls, anything you can imagine. So now people are finding these old pieces of micarta and then chopping them up and putting it inside knife handles. Uh, and so, um, but G10 came out after because I think m- maybe it was cheaper, but I think G10 overall is probably stronger, less prone to flexing. So I think the G10 is a improved version of micarta, but people still want the micarta because of the history and the rarity of it. So, um, for example, like a, micarta is horrible on like steak knives or kitchen knives because you know if you well if you leave it inside a dirty knife inside of a inside of a sink right and if had micarta handles micarta can technically absorb all that bacteria because technically it's a lot of times it's made out of cloth or 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 some kind of fabric so it just absorbs kind of like wooden steak knives you don't see those anymore right wooden handle Hmm. Uh, whereas g10 wouldn't do that so uh, but people still prefer the micarta. They like the way it feels. The way they like the way it looks. They like the way it smells. It's it's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, the people use all kinds of materials. I mean, they even use uh, you know uh, MRI machines, right? They have those giant cables, right? And inside yeah. those cables are essentially superconductor style material, which is basically coils of copper with pieces of niobium on the inside that make a crazy pattern, right? So it'll be like if you ever take a, one of those MRI cables, don't do this if you work at a hospital, right? Don't, <laughs> don't be a crackhead and steal MRI cables, right? First off, it's probably way too heavy for you to carry it out. But inside these cables that are really thick, and you, if you were to take a slice out of it, it would be like a, a copper outside housing with like crazy, like a darker pattern of what they consider a, a, it's a metal called niobium, right? And they use it and they consider it a superconductor because it is needed for I guess power drawing power, but people would take that slice and make that into a knife handle. It's kind of crazy, mm. and so um, people have used carbon fiber from the SpaceX rockets. They've used it's like I mean a meteorite. We use meteorite all the time for knives, and meteorite's crazy expensive. And I always say all the time like. You know, this piece of meteorite traveled over space and time millions of years just for an idiot like me to make a knife out of, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it's a lot of fun because you get to kind of experiment with really cool materials and stuff that you've never used before. Very ancient materials, World War II stuff. Um, and so you kind of feel like you have a, a part of the history because when you when you sand it, all that stuff has a weird, funky smell to it. You, you know, when you're mm. when you're basically sanding old World War II micarta, you're like, oh, this smells like death, right? Mm. <laughs> but but it kind of like it has the, every knife that you make has its own character, right? And so yeah, um, but it's it's a it's a very fun industry, very very uh, respectful. Um, like I said earlier, I. Um, I run four businesses now, now, and and one of those businesses is actually I I run a knife show. So, um, I started hosting my own knife show last year, and it's called the Pacific Northwest 
Custom Invitational. So we purposely made it long as kind of a joke name, but um, but what I do is kind of invite the top makers all over the world to come and showcase their knife in Oregon and sell it however way they want, you know. And and some of these guys are, I mean, some of these guys are absolute legends that show up. And so, um, but so we just had our last show in July at Seaside Oregon at the Seaside Convention Center, and it was probably roughly around the. You know, including the the space that we rented, the the foyer area as well. It was probably around twenty thousand square foot uh, facility that we used. And at the end of the show, there wasn't a single piece of trash on the floor, right? Not a mm. single wrapper, not a single business card, not a single sticker. And everyone had stickers, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that just shows the difference between the knife community and gun community. They're a lot more respectful. You know, if they drop something, they'll pick it up. Um, but the fact that 20,000 square foot didn't have a single piece of trash on the floor is pretty amazing. So, um, so it's. I don't it's, know if I can make that happen, even if I was trying. Uh, me either. <laughs> I was like, there's trash on my floor at home. What's going on? Like, oh, yeah. So, something is going to drop out of my pocket. I'm not going to see it. And I'm going to yeah. be that asshole that, uh, that left a piece of trash from a, uh, a Hull's cough drop that was in my back right. pocket. I didn't know it was in there. But it just shows that someone, if someone sees someone else's trash, they'll pick it up, you know. And so, um, but it was a very cool event. Um, but it was, um, yeah, it was a, uh, it was kind of eye opener because I've been in the gun industry for a long time now, and you know, I've been very fortunate in that industry as well. And it's funny, I don't advertise at all, right? So it's, some people have actually forgotten about me because of a lot of these other companies that come up and have huge budgets on advertising and. I've had people ask me to be uh, to have guns on YouTube videos or magazine ads. I'm like, no, I'm good, <laughs> right? Because um, I think I put in the work early on where people knew who I was, and I've always been slammed, busy as far as never, never not had work, AK work. And so you know, I'm, I'm roughly a year backlog on on AK stuff, and I'm trying to crank them out as fast as possible. But um, been very fortunate and been in the gun industry for a very long time and been to many many gun conventions right many 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 colds and sicknesses you get from that place right yes, <laughs> yes. shot show knows how many times we caught the the disease that shall not be named uh, yeah without knowing that we caught the disease that shall not be named i'm fairly certain yeah. i caught it uh, the first shot show before it actually got released for it because I, I felt like garbage for a 24 hour period right after a shot show event. But yeah, um, but all that being said, like I've never experienced like the community that I find in the knife world, very respectful, very kind, super excited as opposed to just being like, Oh, can this be over with? Right. Or, mm. or, you know, people showing up trying to rip off other people's designs. Right. And turn them into airsoft guns or whatever. Not saying that that doesn't, that doesn't happen in the knife community. Obviously, there's always some kind of bootlegging happening with every kind of product that's popular, but um, it's so different with, with the knife community for sure. You know, just people are very kind, helpful. Um, you know, it's uh, it's kind of like you build like a family. It's very much in between between if you think the AK community was cool, the knife community is even cooler than that, right? It's like a mm. step lower where they're like, it's it's amazing like i, I can't uh, there's no other way to describe it as as far as like these people will have your back right so uh two days ago um 
a friend of ours in the knife community, his wife died from uh, cancer, right? She was 43 years old. And this guy makes brass knuckles. He doesn't even make knives, but he's been very much part of our industry where it becomes a part of the knife world where you can make these little EDC trinkets, right? So this guy makes custom brass knuckles. And the knife industry probably raised, man, a significant amount for his family, you know? And um, I don't know, not, not even with him asking. They just mm -hmm. do it. And so, um, and so I mean... It's, I mean, the way that these people just kind of step up and are so selfless and kind and always basically <laughs> makes me like, oh, yeah, I would never leave this kind of industry because, you know, I built lifelong friends in there, right? There's been many times in the gun industry where people just call you or message you because they want something. And not saying that they don't, that doesn't happen in the knife world, but. Um, you kind of develop these lifelong relationships inside this knife world that doesn't really, you can't really find anywhere else. It's kind of crazy where um, I know that if, as long as I make a knife, I, I know that people will buy them no matter what, right? If I made mm -hmm. a thousand of them, they'd buy a thousand of them. And so it's, um, it's been, it's been amazing. And, uh, um, but obviously I still love guns because, you know, <laughs> how can you not right so. well because you can only throw a knife so fast <laughs> you know it, it's it's better it, it is good to be able to have the ability to throw another hunk of metal a couple hundred yards <laughs> with, yeah. with some accuracy so this is so. this is the weird thing too people that often buy my crazy high-end knives they never cut anything with it yeah they they just want something to go with like their nice watch their nice suit um, and they'll have two knives, one that they'll throw at someone, maybe one they'll use to cut boxes or, you know, cut their fingernails. And then one, they just like holding and opening and closing. And so, um, that's the, also the strange thing that guys don't, and the knife or the gun will don't understand. They're like, <laughs> they'll come up to me and say, Hey, I want a knife where I can use it to like baton, you know, wood in, in the, in the forest while making fires and stuff like that. I'm like, well, you should probably shouldn't use a folder for that. I was like, you should yeah. probably you get a fixed blade. blade. Yeah, like, what are you doing? Like there's essentially a hinge where, you know, a lot of knives will survive this. Mine will survive it, but it will basically make everything come loose because it's not made to be beat on like that. Right. Yep. And so, you know, anyone that's a true outdoorsman would probably use a fixed blade for that. Right. No matter what some YouTube influencer says, right? <laughs> um, well, no, some of them can be very, very convincing, and some of their fans are yeah. so diehard that they'll they'll go to the grave defending whatever it is that they said. But yeah, so yeah, so people in the knife world would be like, "I want something that's super tough that I want to like use to like you know baton wood," and I'm like, "Well, get a fixed blade, right? Get." Or a hatchet. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's nice. literally tools that are meant specifically for that that you don't have to carry around in your pocket. Right. I'm like, <laughs> you have to find the right tool for the job. And this is, I don't know what you're asking me to make. Like a $3,000, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars $9,000 knife is not for that. Right? Yeah. It's like, um, you could use it for that, but then it's just like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? It's like, um, it's like, 
I don't know. It's like saying, I'm going to buy a Ferrari and just take the door and turn it into a skateboard or something like that. It's just like so random where, you know, that that's not the job for that. You know what I mean? It's well, so it of... sounds more because by the way you've, you've described it, it sounds like the knife community is definitely more centered around the art and the mastery of the skill than yeah. it is about the application of the tool. Um, not to say that you can't use the tool for what it's meant for, but it seems like it's definitely more of a collector artistic side of it. So, so a good comparison I would say would probably be like, it'd be like buying a, uh, a Picasso and then going at it with a, with a crayon and adding an addition to the actual painting of your own. Like you, congratulations. You just took something that was really valuable, beat the <laughs> hell out of that. And now you devalued it because Right. It's no longer what it was. Part of the art was the craftsmanship that went into the fit and finish and the how how the lines clean up and all that stuff. And then you just completely destroyed it because now you've got hammer marks and, and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Like, it's yeah, not like you stabbed Hitler with it and, and now it's more valuable, but rather <laughs> you, you stabbed a piece of oak. <laughs> not saying that the, all the knife world is like that, but this is specifically talking about the custom knife world, right? Right. So, um, obviously there's several production companies. There's also even like a mid grade production company they call like mid techs where they'll create a higher end production company than, or higher end knife than, than the several production companies that you can kind of imagine. So it, it kind of bridges the gap between custom and production company called, they kind of consider mid techs. So there's, we're specifically talking about highly collectible makers that are in this knife industry. So, um, if, when we're talking about production knives, oh yeah, that's what I carry all the time. That's what I would use the baton wood because I'm like, you know, this is only like a uh, hundred dollars or whatever, right? And mm -hmm. I guess to some people that is still a lot of money for a knife, a hundred dollars, right? And so, um, but for me, I'm like, okay, well, um, I'd rather use that and send it into some factory to get it warranted. Right, because some people, a lot of those companies will have like a forever warranty. Well, they'll just send you a brand new one, right? Because it mm -hmm. doesn't cost them anything really to make. Um, so I'd rather use that for heavy duty use, and then just have something nicer to wear. People who have like you know luxury watches and things like that, they, they kind of understand that, right? Some people use that, and they they use it for hardcore work, right? Some people will, you know, maybe seals have, are known to wear Rolex, some mariners, right? Um, but you don't you wouldn't see them with like the what they consider a, a higher end rolex right like uh um there's a one called the Day rainbow daytona that goes for hundreds of thousand dollars they're not doing that or going on missions right they're not they have that has like a rainbow diamond all over the, the uh <laughs> the watch right it's made out of gold they're not gonna use that for spec ops right so it's kind of the same thing so you know there are work knives out there. If you're gonna use it to go camping and batoning on, first off, get a fixed blade. Second off, or if you wanted a folder, then use like a, a, a cheaper production knife. Don't use a custom for that because, you know, it's kind of like defeats the purpose of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but all of it will cut. You know, I know some guys that just use my knife to cut meat. They just use it to cut steaks, cut their cigars, right? They, it's kind of weird. <laughs> But knives early on were like the original fidget spinners. Remember when fidget spinners were kind of big for a few years? Oh, yeah. Way before then, knife makers. I never, knife I never bought one because I refused to be one of those weenies. <laughs> but, yes, I remember when they were very popular. 
but knife collectors were that way before that came out because they would open their and close their knives like a million times in a day. Like they'll be talking on the phone and opening and closing a knife the whole time. So for knife collectors, knives were essentially the first fidget spinners kind of thing. Well, I, I and you know I agree with that. Um, even to this day, I'll still if I've got a knife in my hand, I'll sit there and and pop the blade open and close it and open and close it and like feel the click of when it secures in place and all that kind of yeah. stuff and um you know it's funny i i as i got older i i always talk about the fact that like you know first of all when when you're younger like you can get completely and utterly obliterated off of whatever kind of alcohol you can find fall asleep on the bathroom floor hugging the toilet and wake up the next morning feeling pretty refreshed and ready to go for round two <laughs> and now i sleep on a mattress that I spent, you know, over $1,500 on and my feet hurt when I stand up. Like, I don't understand how I can not, you know, be like everything about me is sore when I get out of a, a nice cushioned bed. <laughs> um, but as you, as you, you know, get older, you start to appreciate some of the finer things that, that are required. And when you're young, uh, the, the one example I say is like, I used to buy my socks from Walmart because you can buy like 24 for like, you know, 12 bucks and it's awesome. And you just wear it. And then you buy a new pair that are really nice, really cushiony. They're they're built good quality and all that kind of stuff. And then when you try and go buy Walmart socks again, you're like, oh my god, what is this? Like it's like single ply toilet paper compared to the you know stuff I was using before. And and I kind of learned that I feel like as you get older, there's a couple things I feel like every every man should at least buy. Um, I think you need to buy a nice suit. You have to at one time in your life buy yourself a nice suit just it, the way it makes you feel and going through the whole process it's a cool experience to have i think having a nice watch and and it doesn't have to be like t to me with my budget right like i'm not talking about going out and buying a, a rolex or, but if it's a watch that when you look at the price tag a little part of you goes like oh i don't know if i could afford that like that's that's good that's kind of where you know your your budget is mm -hmm. but when you when you do something uh when you do something that you're very proud of in your life, whether or not it's professional or personal, you know, um, go ahead and reward yourself with something like that. Where you're like, oh god, you know, it's, it, it'll be tough, but I'm going to make it happen because you have a nice watch. Every time you look at the watch, you don't necessarily see the price tag. You're going to see what you accomplished in order to justify the purchase, right? Mm -hmm. You're not just buying a watch to spend two, three, four hundred dollars on, but rather you're buying it because you're like. I worked my ass off for the whole year. I paid off my credit card debt. I, I finished my school loans or I finally hit, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or whatever. Like that's that reminder to you, like of what my accomplishment was not, Hey, look at my $600 watch or a thousand dollar watch. Yeah. Um, I also think that a nice pen mm. is underrated. Yeah. Like to, to have a nice pen that is just yeah. always going to work. And when you, when you write on it, you know, it's going to work and it's going to be smooth. There's not going to be like that halfway through your signature a big old glob of ink just pops out and and now your signature looks like you know someone threw up on you or something like that yeah. um and then a nice knife and that was something that was a recent thing where a couple years ago i was at nra show i think and uh, uh some buddies of mine introduced me to some people who were at microtech and so i got my first microtech knife and like you said it was like one of those things as soon as i opened it up in my hand i was like whoa that that was different and closed it and opened it and was like, that's, that's different. I've never had a knife that made me stop and think about the mechanics that go inside it and how it feels when it popped open and the sound of it and, and even the, the quality of it. And so uh, since then, I've, I've 
I now own two Microtechs, and one of them, like you said, I bought my first one to kind of like have as like a. I used it for a lot of stuff. I probably used it more than I should have, um, but then I got another one that was the Bounty Hunter, and that was just because I love Boba Fett. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've got his bobblehead right here. So <laughs> uh, they made a knife called the Bounty Hunter that was, has the color scheme and the logo and all that kind of stuff of Boba Fett, and I just really like that knife. And and I did use that one too. I that was kind of out of necessity. I I took a knife with me hunting. Uh, got my deer, and then when I tried to gut it, I it, the knife wasn't cutting through the hide at all, so mm-hmm. I had to use my Microtech to, to yeah. gut this deer out in the field. But it did yeah. a great job of it. It did an yeah. excellent job of gutting the deer, and I got some awesome photos of it, like all covered in blood, like in the gut pile and stuff too. So you yeah. know, I, I at least did that. But um, no, I, I agree. I think you know to to have you, you don't appreciate something like a nice knife until you buy one um, and and get to experience that as an owner and, and whatnot. I mean, it's almost like the same. Like, you can own 20 Glocks if you want, but something about the first time you buy a custom build or something like that from someone like Joe Chambers or, uh, you know, Matt McLaren or something like that, like the first time you, you rack a slide on a gun like that and you're like, whoa, what the hell? Like, this feels yeah. like glass with, like, glass on glass with KY jelly between it. Like, that's <laughs> impressive to get metal to feel that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to assume that's that's kind of the experience you had the first time you opened up a custom knife where it was like, oh, like, it's not supposed to feel like that. Yeah. And somehow you made it happen. It felt like it was alive it felt like i don't know it was kind of really hard to describe and um and i kind of chased after that for every knife that i make where people when they open it right and it just flies out and it feels like it has like a a life of its own and you're like whoa and people and when you get that response i'm like that's what got me into making knives you know mm. and so and it's funny because if if i had a if I ever released any kind of recordings of me in the shop, and if I, whenever I get that feeling, I'm in the shop yelling like, yes, I did it, right? Still, <laughs> to this day, I was like, it would just be so embarrassing. And so, like, I still chase after that feeling, like, every knife I make. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very much so that, where it's like, you're like, you notice a difference of quality, for sure, right? And so... Um, obviously I had a very crazy life. So I've had a bunch of different hobbies and a bunch of things I liked. Right. I was really into cars and, um, motorcycles and, um, knives obviously and watches. And, you know, obviously when you get older to your, your taste and collecting changes as well. And so, but I absolutely agree that you should have, um, not only what you're saying, reward yourself, right. To, um, if you if you hit any kind of significant milestone in your life because that item essentially becomes that like a relic of that and when you pass it down to your children those things will have stories behind it and that's mm-hmm. how that's how you get remembered you know what i mean it's kind of crazy um but obviously like i'm always okay with people liking what they like right and so it took right. me a long time it took me a while to get you know, I think mature enough to think that, right? And so, you know, I I was kind of raised with the generation where, like, anything that was kind of weird or out there was always ridiculed. You know what I mean? Like, if if you painted a gun neon green and orange, you know, you would be called bad names, right? <laughs> in in this gun industry, right? 
especially about a lot of the old old school cats. Um, but I I learned early on that you know everyone's okay. It's okay you to like what you like what you like. You know what I mean? It's um, and why are you smiling like that? <laughs> oh, because I remember the ridicule I got from you and Jim and the rest of RD when I when I asked them to get red Cerakote paint so I could paint my uh, my RD two two three one. One, you guys made fun of me because I was making an AK in two two three, which is communist to to make a communist rifle in a NATO caliber. <laughs> so I got made fun of for you. I got made fun of for you guys by you guys uh, because I wanted a two two three AK because I could readily find ammo that I could shoot at steel targets with. Sure. And then when I said I wanted red Cerakote on the bolt, the um, the bolt, the gas tube, the grip, and the stock, I remember Jim looked at me like. You want to do what to my rifle? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I want to make it flashy. So when people see it, they go, wow, that looks really cool. And then I can throw in, yeah, Rifle Dynamics made it. Now, I'm guessing what he didn't want was people to call up and say, I want a pink rifle. <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. So exactly. I got it. But I remember, yes, that, like you said, the first time I was like, yeah, I want to make it black and red. It was like, no, I don't want you to do that. It was like, well, I'm, I'm going to. So, <laughs> but I want it. But. Um, no, yeah, like you said, as soon as there was a time where it was, um, you know, I mean, e even me and my, my pants that I wear when I'm shooting. I mean, the first sure. time I showed up on the range, there were a lot of people who were like, uh, no, that guy needs to go away forever. And, and <laughs> unfortunately for them, yeah. here I am like nine years later and in the, the top percentage of the shooters showing up at every match. But it also becomes, I think it also becomes something that when you, when you experience it, you see and, and you open up to it. Because I think... Something like that, too. You look like John Sharps. You mentioned him earlier. I had him on the podcast, uh, like, episode 8 or 9 or something like that. And we talked about the fact that, like, when his receivers hit, I don't know if it was necessarily for everybody. But I know that when I saw one of his, uh, one of his receivers for the first time ever, it was the, um, the Sharkhead one, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I, like, I lit up. I was like, holy shit, that is fucking cool. Like, hell yes awesome and then people started showing out like the Cerakote jobs the paint jobs they were doing to make them custom and i was like yep it's only making it better for me yeah you know, i thought that was super cool um right. so yeah it's not for everybody but yeah yeah i mean it, i was kind of against I, I was raised in that group where it was like you know in, in the gun industry where they're like hey it's guns are just tools just you know don't have guns where you, you can't really enjoy or it's not really good uh, for home defense or self-defense or not the best, you know, killing machine you can kind of get out there. And then, you know, when I kind of went off on my own and just had really time to reflect, I'm like, you know what, you know, guns are also just made to be enjoyed. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I like Colt Pythons, right? Because I was like, there's so much history behind it that's smooth. I'm not going to use that to like hunt zombies like rick grimes right but um i want to take you know i want to i want to go out and you know shoot that gun just to enjoy it right and so it took me a little while just because i wouldn't say it's brainwashing it's just you know um an older generation's opinions that, and i was very impressionable right as a a young builder and you know i adopted all of that as truth which you know again like you know, when, when I started my business and I had a performance company, right? There was a, a race car company and said they wanted, uh, 
a blue and oh no, I'm sorry, a purple and white digital camo. I'm like, what? And I was like, oh well, he needs it as promotional thing, because his cars are just crazy rap with all these stickers on there. So he wants something wild to kind of match his cars. Makes hundred percent sense. And then whenever you know, if I post a picture of that, people would just talk all this trash, not knowing that that's not the intended purpose of this gun. I mean, this guy had a bunch of guns out there, a bunch of guns that people couldn't even afford. This guy was, you know, he built some of the fastest race cars in America, and he wanted something just kind of go with this one car he was making or his style. And so he has plenty of black guns. He has plenty of OD guns. He has plenty of flat dark earth guns or coyote gray, whatever. But he wanted something different to kind of show off to his other clients that, you know, he has all these crazy race cars. And then I was like, okay, well, yeah, like maybe I just had some weird thoughts about all guns should be black or whatever. And I mean, even now I'm getting different clientele that, grew up as total nerds and dorks and you know they watch anime right and read, read comic books and you know play video games and they're like hey can you can you paint my gun in this video game scheme right and they're grown adults that have very successful businesses some of them are multi-millionaires some of them are billionaires right and like i'm like okay well now they have money and like they can kind of do what they like they like they they can kind of do things that remind them of their childhood you know and who am i to judge them for that right because the 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 older generation that does ridicule some younger kid for having something flashy it's like they're kind of doing a disservice because it does it gets them away from the shooting community like oh these guys are a bunch of dicks i don't want to shoot i don't want to be into guns but if you show some of these kids some kindness, when they grow up, they'll remember. And if they have money, they'll buy your stuff. It's always kind of happened, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean. I'll make, was... I'll make fun of you for shooting a high point, but I won't make fun of the way it looks. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we'll make fun of you regardless. And right. It just, that's one more thing. But you, it's okay because you, you can like what you like, you know? So, yeah. like. Some people like things that I think are dumb, right? Like I don't, I don't, I don't collect sneakers, right? Um, these days, I only collect really watches and knives these days and guns, but um, I, I'm, I kind of stepped away from cars and motorcycles because I was like, I don't go anywhere, right? So, um, but some guys are into sneakers, and that world's unbelievable, right? They're like people, yeah, that don't understand where like. You know they'll spend hundreds of thousand dollars on shoes and and some of them just instantly deteriorate i don't know if you know or not but some of those shoes like over time just automatically like the materials just crumble right yep but they're spending five six figures on these on these shoes and i'm like that's fine you can like what you like right and so it's yeah just, i don't understand it but yeah pokemon cards or whatever right and so <laughs> beanie babies yeah and... yeah it's always like something but i'm like people <laughs> like what they like and um, who am i to judge right and so um that's kind of been my different mindset and i've been getting a lot of like younger clients now because you know there's been a huge uptick in you know early on with the crypto boom where there was a lot of young kids that 
you know, made tremendous amount of money by being kids and farming Bitcoin. You know what I mean? Yep. I know a guy that farmed 30,000 Bitcoin. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, when he was 14. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, there's a whole clientele of these young kids that have money. And I feel like the older generation is just alienating them by saying, oh, that's lame. That's not manly or whatever. I'm just like, dude, yeah, let your, we'll do whatever you want, right? We'll just make it fun and make it fun for you. And it took me a, lot, a long time to recognize that, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, and I feel like I was kind of lucky. Um, I, I owe a lot of who I am and the way I am today actually to uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> I know it's weird to say, right? But yeah. when when I got into WWF and watching Stone Cold Steve Austin in the area era that WWF was in during that time, right? Cuz it was it was Stone Cold, it was Degeneration X, it was hey, we got two words for you, suck it, right? Like that was those were the slogans that I listened to. Give you, you know, I just whipped uh I just whipped your ass as Austin 316, right? And and it was this era where I felt that his character connected with me in a way where I was going through high school where there's a lot of social pressure and you want to be the popular one, you want to be the cool kid, you want to be the jock, you know, whatever. And when I when he came out as a character and just the way he presented himself of like, oh, you don't like me? Well, let me stun you then. Right. It's like, I don't give a shit if you like me or not. Like right. what matters is that I'm going to whoop your ass kind of thing. Right. And for me growing up in that time, that's where I started. Like my, my last, I think it was my last two years of high school. You know, my first two years was all about American Eagle and uh, Miller's Outpost or Anchor Blue and, you know, having these name brand things. My, my junior and senior year in high school, I wore white Hanes undershirts that you could buy, you know, five in a pack at Walmart for eight bucks and then blue Dickies, blue dicky pants. And the only thing I had that was like of value was a famous stars and straps belt buckle and belt. But are you going to say a black vest with no sleeves a onesie with your shirtless <laughs> bald head? Exactly. And then, <laughs> yep. And a duct tape gun to my back. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, my junior senior, that's what I wore. Every day when I went to school or when I went out, I was in a white t-shirt, blue dickies, and my famous stars and straps. And I wore, you know, Vans or whatever shoes were on my feet. Like, I, typically, I think they were skater shoes. Um, but I remember a lot of people used to be like, like, weren't you wearing that yesterday? Like, well, I mean, they're it's a different pair of pants and shirt. <laughs> I'm wearing the same one, you know? Like, like. Well, why, like, why don't you change that up? And like, even, I think even my mom was like, are you sure, like, that's what you want to wear? And I'm like, mom, I don't care. If someone doesn't like me because my shirt doesn't have a Nike swipe swoop on it, then they can suck it. Literally. Like, I don't, I don't care what they think. And if they're going to judge me based on the fact that I can't or I don't want to wear a Nike shirt, then that says a way hell of a lot more about them as a person than it does about me not wearing it. And if they're going to judge me on something stupid like that, then I know instantaneously I want nothing to do with that person. Yeah. And so it's funny that when when I got into the firearms industry, I was lucky enough that uh, one year, and luck would have it, one year I got to meet Stone Cold Steve Austin because he came to SHOT Show with Taryn Butler. Mm -hmm. So Taryn introduced me, and like 
prior to the show, I had gotten sick. I was over the cold, but I had lost my voice. So here is the man that got me through the mental side and the mental anguish of my teenage high school years that all I want to do is tell him how much I want to thank him. I appreciate everything that he did for me growing up. I would love to buy him a beer. Like, you know, but I can't freaking talk. I'm like, <laughs> it's all I can get out to him, you know, and uh, I mean, still to this day, I'm just like, oh, God, I just I still need to buy him a beer. I owe him <laughs> a beer at least. Um, but but yeah, like I said, it was it was I was lucky enough. I feel like early on in my life where I just kind of got that mentality of like, I'm not going to I'm not for any everybody. Some people are going to dislike me. And if they dislike me, that's fine. They don't have to like me. If they right. do like me, then cool. I appreciate it. But I also like. I'm I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be a good person in general. If you think I'm an asshole, then you must have done something to make me give that kind of a reaction off. But yeah. um, I I think yeah. with me because I was a performer as well in high school and all that. Right, I was professional break dancer probably from when I was seventh grade to like twenty one probably maybe, and um, and we were a very unique uh, looking group of kids like we were um we were called knucklehead zoo and so we look like a bunch of freaks like um so we were like the first kids that were showing up to these break dancing events everyone's wearing adidas or looking like super tough wearing their you know any kind of like you know windbreaker style stuff and we were showing up with tank tops on right black tank tops and we had crazy hair right we've had <laughs> Uh, and I wore crazy contact lenses. We all kind of did back then. And we were basically looked like an emo band showing up to these breakdancing events. And they're kind of common now, but my, my head was shaved down in the middle. Right. And then this side was like maroon red. And I had a, a jet, a tail that came down off the side here. And then went a Jedi tail that braided that went all the way down. Right. So we look like a bunch of freaks, right? And Jedi tail. Nice. <laughs> and it actually did. Uh, it, I mean, it made us insanely popular, right? And uh, um, and it was like we were always like, yeah, we were. I mean, we were break dancing not only to you know the classic break beats and stuff like that, but we were listening to like Incubus and house music and stuff like that. So we thought way outside the the box for people. All the old school guys wanted to fight us because they thought we were ruining the dance, right? Mm. And I think somewhere as I got older and joined the firearms industry, I think it was so – maybe I was maybe afraid of being so judged where mm -hmm. I figured um, if these guys uh, are maybe potentially the top of their game, the masters, maybe I should just kind of conform to them and conform to the crowd so not stick out like a sore thumb for them or put a strike against their company or make them look bad. Kind of very Asian of you, right? To kind of think like, oh, I don't want to bring shame to, right. this, to this older gentleman. And so um, I think I was very young and impressionable. And, and you know, it's kind of developed that mentality where I'm like, okay, well, all guns don't have to be fighting guns, you know, mm -hmm. um, where they thought all guns should be fighting guns. But again, like, you know, when I got my when I got my FFL, I built a full auto 1022 because I've always wanted it, right? I've always wanted an auto 22, 
because I'm like, this is not a combat gun, but it's so fun to shoot, right? It's like one of those carnival BB guns, right? Um, yeah. And so it's it's I, at that point I was like, I just want to. Why can't I just enjoy guns, right? Why can't mm. I just enjoy all guns, right? Some people love like, you know, cap and ball stuff, or you know, um, or uh, lever actions, and uh, and you know, whatever people say, lever actions aren't probably a, a good combat gun compared to what's available out there, right? Um, right. Um, no matter how souped up it is, right? And so, but um, yeah, it's 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 kind of weird where like. Um, you kind of look down upon if you kind of set people that like wild and crazy things, you know? Um, and, uh, I think, yeah, somewhere down the line, I think I probably forgot about that just because I wanted a sentence in this community. Right. Because, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of Asians in our, in the industry, right. But there are usually a lot of them are behind the scenes, right. They're not usually a face of a company. Um, and, you know, Asians are respectful. They don't want to bring shame upon, you know, <laughs> upon a, a company, right? Especially if you own it, it's a different story. You can do whatever you want, you know, and I kind of learned that right. early on where um, I had to put away some of my developed prejudices of, against people that are, you know, they're just wanting to be creative or there's, they are creative people, right? Life's too short to kind of like not enjoy what you like, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm all about it. And so, um, but that was, that was an interesting turn that I kind of started when I, when I started my own company and, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was kind of refreshing, right. When, when people just want crazy stuff, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. You know, like, mm -hmm. cause, cause you can imagine, you gotta, remember, people... you gotta think like, you know, creative people are going to piss people off, but yeah. there's a reason why creativity, um, exists and and it's mostly because it's people that break the mold there there's something that they want to change and we yeah. as humans we're we're creatures of habits yeah. right like do you take the same route when you find a good route to go from work to home and back that's the route you tend to take and any deviation or detour that you have to take almost is like an inconvenience like oh my i can't believe i have to exit off of rainbow instead of buffalo right <laughs> and yeah. um and so I think when it comes to yeah any anything it doesn't even have to be firearms it could be you know like look at a uh, perfect example is the the snow world skiing was the sport and then someone came out with snowboarding and everyone was like what is that get it off our mountain you're not allowed to be up here that was like but now it's in the Olympics and it's a legit sport and all that kind of stuff but it had to pissed a whole lot of people off except that it was different and that's just and not every thing is is a success or a good idea so let's make that make sure that, that yes. that's clear yes. as well but <laughs> if you want if you want to try to be creative if you want to be uh, have that creative energy um just know that you are also going to piss people off it's just yep. comes with the territory if you're going to be creative you've got to do something destructive you have to break something in order to create something new if right. you want to be creative otherwise you just end up doing the exact same thing that everyone else is doing we all end up driving you know chevy sparks or whatever and right. uh you know life's boring i'm more i'm more likely to ridicule you if your gun is trash right so right. If, if it's known to be a trash gun then i'll be like all right that's trash i don't care what kind of paint job on it i'll be like hey that's a good paint job but that gun's trash so right 
Um, that's one of the things when I build my guns. I, I never compromise quality and reliability and accuracy. Um, speaking of accuracy, I mean, if you ask the Thunder Ranch guys gun, uh, those those guys actually shot one of my guns and they're recording. I was getting under half or right around half MOA with them with a 16 inch barrel AK, right? So accuracy is there, but I never would compromise the reliability and quality that was taught by Jim. It's just that I just don't care what the outside looks like, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, let your, you know, creativity show. But if if the out if you want me to compromise, like using a, a terrible part, I'm not going to do it, right? So, right. Um, so yeah, as far as like, if your gun is trash, then yeah, I probably would ridicule you. But as long as you're shooting, that's fine, right? But if that's all mm-hmm. you can afford, because not everyone can afford a. Three thousand dollar gun, twenty thousand dollar gun, whatever, right? I understand that, but uh, you know, but if you're if you're you have the money and you're buying a, you know, five hundred dollar turd, I'm gonna I'm gonna make fun of you, right? So, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. yeah. So right on. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, we're we're coming up on two hours here. Um, we're gonna move on to what I like to do, uh, which is a, a couple fast fire questions. Okay. So I like to wrap up my, my podcast and all that kind of stuff. And then afterwards, we'll give you a, give you a second to, to wrap things up for yourself. So the first question for you, uh, being an AK guy, 7.62 or 5.45? I'll tell you this, that the only personal gun that's not owned by the company I own that I have that's under my name is a 5.45 gun. So, um, but I invested heavy in five for five, meaning I have a ton of ammo for a ton of mags, so I have enough to shoot for the rest of my life. Five for five, I just love that round. I think it's, I mean, it just shoots so flat, and especially in different profiles. And I know like the twelve five, uh, twelve inch ARs got really popular, but AK guys been doing that for forever, yo. So um, the twelve <laughs> oh, five, yeah, the twelve inch <laughs> five for five guns are just so good now if it's your first ak maybe 762 and if you don't have all that ammo maybe 762 yeah because it, it it is a little bit of a different story getting that ammo in uh nowadays mm-hmm. than it was back in the day yeah. so yep for sure all right uh playstation or xbox oh i've always been a playstation guy you know i this oh, i was a big to, uh, represent <laughs> I, I, this is what made me. I was actually a competitive gamer for a long time as well, um, playing in arcades, uh, usually fighting games. Um, the last one I would play with was Marvel vs. Capcom 2. Um, so I was really heavy, heavy into competitive gaming when I was a teenager. I mean, like, I would stay at arcades and miss school and just spend two days there, no sleep, right? And so I was always a die-hard PlayStation guy. I saved my pennies when I was in seventh grade uh, and bought a PlayStation 1 with Jumping Flash as the game where you're like a bunny jumping, right? Uh, Resident Evil 1. And then the first Xbox I bought was an Xbox 360, right? Mm-hmm. And then eventually I ended up getting that red ring of death and I was like, no more! I shot it with my AK. You know, <laughs> Xbox 360 surprisingly bulletproof, right? So, <laughs> um, and so, uh, and then so, the, I think the uh, my last 
PlayStation was actually a PlayStation 3. And after that point, I just ran out of time for gaming. So um, I haven't played any modern PlayStation games since PS3. And so, oh, wow. Yeah, and I've yeah. even had games that are still in wrappers. I just like, at that point, I just, from then, from then on, I haven't, yeah, I haven't had time to game at all. Like, at all. The last game I played all the way through was Uncharted 3. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I just finished playing that game. I bought like oh, really? the, I bought the package deal where you got like Uncharted, Uncharted 2, and Uncharted 3. Yeah. From my yeah. PlayStation 4. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, like, it was, it was, it kind of made me sad. I'm like, oh, this part of me is kind of dying, you know? And as, as, the kids get older. They obviously they're into gaming, and they're most more more into the Nintendo stuff, right? Nintendo Switch, and so um, been playing some of that uh, with them. But it's kind of crazy. I'm like, this was a, a era, a end of an era when I was like obsessed with games, and then it just stopped. So mm-hmm. it was uh, it was crazy. But I'll always be a PlayStation guy because that was like my first system, and that Red Ring of Death just kind of killed it for me, and so. Yep, I agree. I had an Xbox 360, and yep, did the same thing. At uh, well, that, and then also at the time, PlayStation Network was free if you wanted to play yes. online, but you yes. had to pay. You had to pay for the bundle uh, with the Xbox. So That's I right. got rid of my Xbox. But all right, would you rather celebrate St. Patty's Day or Cinco de Mayo? Um, I mean, the thing is, I'm not a big drinker these days, so I'm like neither. I think they're both kind of lame. But you see, know. you see that, and here's here's what I see. And now, Grant, maybe this is like we said when we were a little bit older. Before, it was all about the alcohol. Now, it's a matter of do you want to have corned beef, passion potatoes, or do you want to have tacos? Wait, That's what? the way I see it. Like, what are you going to celebrate on St. Patty's Day? You get corned beef, you know, corned beef hash and corned beef and cabbage. That's an Irish, uh, you know, sure. dish, which I I like because I'm half Irish. Sure. But Cinco de Mayo, like, who doesn't like tacos? I'll I'll right. I'll smash fifteen tacos, no problem. So my my big thing is that I have that gene where. And when I eat cilantro, it tastes like soap. So <laughs> as much as I love Mexican food, and every time I ask no cilantro, it's always in there. I mean, it's like <laughs> there's no stopping it. And So it sounds like, like you'd celebrate St. Patty's Day then. <laughs> I guess I would. <laughs> Conor McGregor, and, okay, right? So, corned beef and cabbage and some potatoes. Like, man, just, just embrace it. It's good. It really I, is. I do love me some corned beef. So exactly. See, so, all right. Um, and then if you are having tacos, do you prefer soft tacos or hard tacos? Ooh, soft. I know I was going to say, there's only one right answer to this. question. (laughs) I know it's, I know it's this or that, but there's really only one right answer. Hard tacos are stupid. (laughs) What other food do we accept where you take the first bite and it explodes in your hand and everything falls out and you're just okay with it. Like if that happened with your hamburger, you'd be pissed. That's true. I mean, I understand right? that if, if you put a soft one on the outside, like Taco Bell did, that makes sense because then you'll have a texture inside there, right? But, yes, and yeah. you know what it does, though? It also holds the hard shell from exploding. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that also, like, I've always been, like, a cleanly guy, so I've always preferred a burrito over a taco just because mm-hmm. I feel like tacos are so messy and they get all over the place where I can have a controlled thing with the burrito. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, no, the fact that you have to turn your head to eat in taco is a <laughs> yes. little weird. Yes. Like who like at one point, you know, someone was creating food, right? And right. everything he was like, I'm tired of just, you know, 
eating like this. I really want to eat like this. Right. I'm going to make a food that has to be, you know, I, I don't know. It was tacos very, are awesome, but only if they're soft tacos. Very inconvenient when driving as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's, I'll say that's, that's why I prefer burritos over tacos too, because you can totally yeah. eat a burrito and drive, but a taco you're like, unless it's a soft one. Cause see what you do with a soft taco is that you fold it like a burrito. Yes. And then you're able to yeah. eat it while you're driving. Yeah. So, so stop. You which the whole thing you should mouth. not, yeah. please make sure you do not eat and drive. We're not, we're not encouraging that. Can't stop we're, you from doing it. Not, but, but it's fantastic. So. Yes. Especially if you got a stick shift, like I still do. <laughs> <laughs> makes exactly. it really fun in traffic better use but... of your time if your time's limited eat while you drive right yes so. exactly right and then uh would you rather be able to speak any language or would you rather speak to animals speak any language because i feel like animals probably would just not have anything interesting to say maybe or i would i don't know I, I just, I don't think I would, I don't, even being in Oregon, I encounter probably animals a lot more than other people do, but they're just like, they just run away. They're, they're going to say, see ya, every time you see them, see ya, bye. <laughs> <laughs> but what if you could communicate with them and be like, hey, yo, come back, I got to ask you a question, or hey, I saw a cougar in the area, maybe you ought to like, you know, chill, relax, like, you could develop a pretty good, fr like, imagine how good it would be to have like a hawk for a friend. I know, but who said they'll be your friend? Just because you talk to somebody doesn't mean they'll be your friend. Dude, and I'm just saying, wild only... animals that you feed tend to just show up and be a little bit more friendly to the person that feeds them than they do not, right? So if you could actually communicate, like, oh, what about a bear, right? Bear's like, raw, and you're like, whoa, bro, like, you know, we're good. And like, who's to say a bear wouldn't be like, whoa, we're good? Like, oh, I thought you were coming to kill me because, you know, that's typically what you humans do. That's why the aliens haven't come to visit us yet because the first thing that would happen is they'd catch a 9mm to the big old bulging eye and then they'd be dissected. Or have they <laughs> visited us? But um, They have. You I, know, I, I have a theory. I think, I think that if you could talk to animals, again, they would still be skittish. They wouldn't trust humans. I think yeah, the time true. you'd talk to them would be at a zoo and the whole time they'd be like kill me please kill me <laughs> i think i think it would just be such a sad scene where if i can talk to someone in some foreign country if i get taken like and liam neeson doesn't save me i can understand what they say you know it just seems like it's a lot more practical to know human language where you can be like uh yeah please don't sell me as a sex slave um, <laughs> or or you could even say, like, I, I'm i going to kill you as soon as I get out of this. And they're like, oh, oh my gosh, you speak Russian? Or you can say, or... oh, I can translate for you. This person is saying this or that. I think it will just be a lot more practical than being like, bye, bear. Bye, uh, raccoon. <laughs> I'm eating my trash raccoon. And the raccoon's like, screw you, son. I'm going to eat your trash as much as I want. You know, and it's like, okay. But see, then you could also do the warning. Be like, hey, eat, eat another piece of my trash, and you're going to get a suppressed 22 to the cone. The then like catch me if you can right it's always gonna be like some kind of a, <laughs> i have a feeling a raccoon would be like a little a little dick because they just don't care you know what I mean? and so they're gonna be like all right well i'm gonna i'm gonna fight your dog next time i see your dog <laughs> and so i've seen i've seen incredibles too Jack, Jack <laughs> doing, doing battle with the raccoon for sure yeah and so i think i don't know because i think the animals no matter what most of the time would be skittish but it would be interesting to, to talk to my own dog but I think I'll just be disappointed being like, this This dog is so dumb. He's like, he'll just be like Doug from Up. He'll be like, hi, friend. 
<laughs> Let's play. The, th the same things that you think that they're thinking anyway, right? I'm hungry, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's true. Thing. And I, I see a lot of animals here. I mean, we have all kinds. We have bald eagles. We got everything, right? And we got bears and elk and all kinds of monsters that live in the ocean and the and the woods. But um, it's they're so skittish, you know what I mean? Like yeah, well, and and I keep my ass out of monster soup anyway. I I hate. <laughs> yeah, because you know, just say a bear's not gonna eat you just because you can talk to them. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, but I mean, at least you could explain, you know, what's going on. Like why why you put a ten millimeter in his chest was because <laughs> he was trying to eat you. But I, I kind of think we have a mistake that they'll have the same intelligence as humans where. They would be able to understand instead of just knowing basic instinct stuff like I'm hungry, I'm angry, I'm afraid. So I think it would just be that. And I'd be like, oh, this is a waste where I can tell some guy in Zimbabwe that, hey, uh, I want to eat that monkey leg or something. You know what I mean? So it's like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Yes, uh, you, you make a good point. Yeah. I don't get me wrong. I, I actually feel like I would want to speak any language too, because I just think that would be cool to listen to people shit talk about me without them knowing that I know what they're saying, and then to all of a sudden just drop it on them in their own language and be like, "Oh yeah, is that what you think? Let me tell you what yeah. I think of you." And they'll be like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't realize." So. But plus, you're a hunter, so you know after you shoot that deer, they're like, "Why, John? Are the friends <laughs> of your daughters?" <laughs> yeah, they're. There is a little bit of uh, bliss within that ignorance of not having to hear a hear a deer as it runs away, uh, saying, "Ow, there, ow God, you. what the hell is that? Who shot me? Why is there an arrow hanging it. in my side?" All right, Billy. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on, chatting with me, uh, telling everyone your story and all that kind of stuff. So, I like to I like to wrap things up by giving you an opportunity. If there's if there's any companies you want to give a shout out to, or any people, or you know anything like that, um, go ahead and, and the floor is yours. So. Okay, so uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, my firearms company is Ironborn Armory, and you can mostly find us on Instagram, um, instagram.com slash ironbornarmory. Um, you can see my knife work at, uh, same thing, uh, instagram.com slash chogunassassin, no spaces. And also I have a knife group on Facebook that's pretty private, but that's where I usually post daily and show the projects I'm working on. Um, I also do... Uh, have a seracoding business, but I mostly cater to OEMs. So if you're interested in OEM and want products done, you could uh, hit me up for that. We do a lot of OEM companies that I'm not legal to allowed to say, but um, they're big companies. Um, and if you're interested in attending our knife show, it's usually uh, every July in Oregon. Um, it's called the Pacific Northwest Custom Invitational. We do have a Facebook group for that as well that has about 1,500 members. Um, if you're interested in checking out a knife show. So thanks. Glad to be on here, John. Appreciate it. Word. Exactly. No, it was, it was good to be able to catch up. It has been a long time. Um, ever since we were in Vegas, probably the last time we got to hang out and see each other. Um, so yeah, it's just good to catch up. So, well, again, thank you. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on board thanks. and, uh, and chatting with me. And, and, uh, with that being said, Thank you all to that are listening. Uh, we appreciate you. Yeah, man. I, and... I, uh, I told you it'd be a long one. <laughs> it's it's about what it is. So, but uh, with that being said, thank <laughs> you all so much. Uh, again, this was open action with me, John McLean, brought to you by Arms Corp Precision. And until the next episode, see you later.